everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we have again the amazing Dr. John Lundwell with us. How are you, John? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Oh, we are so excited about this next episode. And I know everybody is also equally excited. We want to point out that this is going to be a third part. We've already had a part one and a part two where we discussed um, oral versus secondary oral versus literary traditions in the pre-Columbian Americas. So if you want to start from the very beginning on our journey with a Dr. John, or as I like to call him, Indiana John, um, if you want to start from the very beginning, you can go back to, and watch part one and part two. But you can also just dive in right here because in the first couple episodes, um, John mentioned he had some other points that he wanted to cover. And there's been great interest in that. We had a lot of people come up to all of us at Sunstone and say, when are you going to hit those other points? So we do not disappoint. <laughs> we want to make sure that we dive into this. So today we've asked John back to just start talking about, um, I believe this will be his third point um, in talking about the, the Book of Mormon authenticity and pre-Columbian America. So that being said, let's just dive right in with John. Go right ahead. All right. Well, I will share my screen. All right. When I uh, uh, started Reading the Book of Mormon with Orality and Literacy in Mind, I came up with five theses. Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to do number three. The five theses are, one, the greatest anachronism in the Book of Mormon is the text itself. Two, a tight translation is impossible. A loose translation is an act of violence. We've already gone over those. Today, we'll go over three. The text of the Book of Mormon cannot be derived from the description of the gold plates. Uh, and then we have the Book of Mormon characters are fabricated. The standard of proof as set by the priesthood brethren resides only in a tight translation and in, in its literal historicity. Um, so tonight we're doing uh, point th three, having determined that the Book of Mormon text is entirely anachronistic. Its historicity is written as objective narrative of sequential historical facts where the cosmovision rests in historical truth instead of cosmic truth, where its theology is displaced from sacred place to the individual, from sacred ritual and sacrifice to personal repentance rooted in solitary divine atonement, where sermons replace dances, laws and scripture replace the sacred tableau of cosmic place, time and way, and where every aspect of this supposed ancient civilization is seen as fully literate, I decided to cross-check my analysis with a different direction. And that is, I wanted to look at the medium of the message. And in this case, the literal medium. What was the Book of Mormon text originally written on and in what language? And of course, uh, we don't have the golden plates to inspect, uh, nor do we have the inscriptions on the golden plates to inspect. <laughs> so, you know, it's pretty difficult to do. However. We do have several accounts of the description of the gold plates, and they are all in some form of moderate agreement to what the golden plates uh, were like and even the characteristics of the text written on them. So from that, I did a simple analysis. And um, so, you know, today we're just going to go over that in 2015. This bled over into 2016 as I was doing this with the Book of Mormon. I, I couldn't find this analysis. It's so simple. I, I thought this is so obvious. Uh, but since then, I have found both an apologetic response and um, 
you know, Mike at LDS Discussions has uh, a page dealing with this as well. So it, this information in some forms is out there, uh, but uh, not quite particular in, in the approach that I have taken. So today we're just going to go over the gold plates and what they represent. Um, look, they're allegedly a physical object with physical properties with real human writing, a real human writing system engraved upon them. And furthermore, these were made and written by a real historical people doing real historical things. So the plates and the writing system must conform to the patterns of history in time and place. And quite frankly, that's not how they're treated. They're treated as really a magical MacGuffin upon which all the hopes and wishes of the faithful place their obedience, from which all the authoritarian apparatus of the church extracts their obedience, and to which all the apologetics apply every parallelism they can find to justify the obedience. And I find that system problematic at best. So the plates and writing systems are real and historical, or they are not. There's no in-between. So let's start with the medium, the gold plate. So here's the origin story of those plates. Uh, September 21st, everyone, I'm just going to burn through this because everyone knows that September 21st, it's an equinox date, by the way. The angel Moroni appears to Joseph Smith, who's 17 years old, and tells him of an ancient record written on gold plates. The record recounts a thousand year history of an ancient civilization. September 22nd, 1827, four years later, Smith takes the actual plates according to the narrative to his home in harmony pennsylvania translation begins 1828 and is completed by july of 1829 so from 1823 when joseph smith first learns about the plates to 1829 uh when we get the finished transcription of supposedly what's on the plates is we have this you know this various history of joseph smith knowing plates trying to retrieve plates obtaining plates carrying the plates around and translating plates um so in my analysis i just want to know <clears throat> what civilization i mean we're looking at the americas either north america or mesa america or you know any of the americas at this point, Antarctica and the Arctic, too. Well, we'll, we'll go anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. What civilization um, would be writing a thousand-year history on gold plates? And so here is, I just pulled from Book of Mormon Central. They have an article posted on there entitled, The Top Five Archaeological Evidences for the Book of Mormon. And, you know, that's interesting. The top five. These are the top five archaeological evidences. Number one, this is their number one archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon, is writing on plates. And I just plopped these three paragraphs down. I was wondering, Landon, is that big enough text you can read that? Yeah, I can read it. He didn't it even ask seemed, me. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to ask you. Uh, he knows better. <laughs> It almost seems a shame to use up one of my five evidences here. The issue of inscribed metal plates in stone boxes has been so effectively laid to rest by modern archaeology that Latter-day Saints hardly remember when it was one of the Mormonism's most prevalent and scathing criticisms. 
We were told the ancients did not preserve records on plates. We were told ancient Israelites in particular did not write on plates. We were told they would have been too heavy for Joseph to carry while running from ruffians or heft from one hiding place to the next. Time has rendered all such objections moot. Hundreds, if not thousands, of examples of metal plates, copper, silver, bronze, brass, and yes, gold, many in stone boxes, and even some bound with metal rings, have been unearthed in places as diverse as Spain, Bulgaria, Italy, Greece, Korea, Egypt, Syria, Iran, even Mesoamerica, too many to mention. As for Israel, not only have we found the famous copper scroll of Qumran, but two small silver plates from Jerusalem that date to the 7th to 6th century BC. Finally, we learn of a shimmering gold and copper alloy called Tumbaga by the Spanish that has existed from pre-Columbian times, the same composition described by Joseph's brother William, bringing in the plates at a nice, heftable weight of 40 to 60 pounds. This is interesting. This, this is... Book of Mormon Central saying this. This isn't one of your five theses. This is no, one of their five. That's correct. And this is interesting because we went to the church history library uh, just recently, and this is what they told us, that there were yeah. museums full of gold pl uh, plates all over the East Coast, and that uh, that they were a metal alloy that made it light enough that you could carry it. That's why they could carry the gold plates. Uh, so this is the first I've heard of, that was the first I'd heard of that, and now here it is repeated. Well, and that they were metallurgists, that the, the Nephites and Lamanites were skilled metallurgists and, and skilled in the making of all alloy. You know, uh, Rebecca, you made a comment in our last uh, discussion where you said, you know, there has to be a whole ecosystem of technology surrounding the technology of writing and plate making. What are all the things that has to exist in order for this, this technology to exist? Uh, to be traded, to be done, uh, to be kept in libraries, right? What, what, what are all the things? And as you look at that, uh, it becomes enormously problematic, but not, uh, not uh, anything that the apologists can't do. This, uh, so look, here's their argument. And in fact, I have a, this picture on your screen is a picture in 2017. The, the church actually had, I think his name was Gordon Andrus, uh, um, actually make a replica of the gold plates. And so uh, there's an article on their website that uh, talks about the process of how he made the plates, how he did the writing on the plates. You know, to get the writing on the plates, first uh, he, he took the Book of Mormon characters uh, that were written down by, uh, I thought John Whitmer, but Dan Vogel told me Christian Whitmer. Um he standardized their size. Uh, he printed them on a special plastic sheet using a laser printer and then uh, melded them to the plate he had made in a press uh, so that the ink on the plastic sheet would stay on the on the metal plate. And then he used a modern engraving tool to engrave each character. Uh, and so, I mean, they look impressive, but <laughs> again, all the technology needed for him to do what he did has nothing to do with the ancient technologies of the ancient world. And we have to look, you know, what would they have done, how they would have done it, what language are they writing it in? Um, in any case, here's their argument. 
hundreds, if not thousands of examples of metal plates, copper, silver, bronze, brass, all around the world, Spain, Bulgaria, Italy, Greece. I, they finally mentioned Mesoamerica. <laughs> uh, and so here is a methodology that um, we are going to run into over and over again in these discussions that apologists do, which is they have a problem. You know, we've got gold plates with a thousand year history written on them. That seems odd and strange. How are we going to solve that problem? And the methodology then is to go out anywhere in the world at any time period in any culture, in any cultural context to find any kind of parallel similarity. And if we find any kind of parallel similarity, we've solved the problem. I mean, this is not this is not responsible scholarship and in some ways it's intellectually dishonest so uh it's not that i mean you can do this when i start a research project i do this i go and i look for similarities but as soon as i find anything i then have to start you know comparing cultures times languages contexts <laughs> in order to see what kind of similarity i have and so uh in any case, there's their argument. After they write this argument, they list three examples of writing on gold plates that they have found around the world. One of them found in a stone box. And as it turns out, as you do your Google search, these three examples are used on almost every apologetic website. So I am going to go over the three examples they have used to show that the claims of the book, the veracity of the claims of the Book of Mormon. Uh, the first example, uh, which is one that almost all the Mormon apologists start with are the Darius gold plates. I have here the name of the object, the date of the object, the purpose of the object, the, the cultural context of the object, its size, and then the bottom one is its textual density, because this actually is important. The textual density is how many words are written on that plate or object uh, per square inch, right? Um, and I'm deriving that textual density. I don't read these ancient languages, so I'm, I'm deriving that textual density by taking a modern English scholarly translation comparing it to the surface area of the object, and that gives me how many words per square inch, okay? So that's how I'm driving the textual density. Uh, so here are the three prime examples, Book of Mormon Central and practically every other apologist use, Darius Gold Plates. Well, uh, remember in our first two episodes when I said that for from the invention of writing all the way well, actually, into the CEs, into the early Christian era, most religious texts are not written as an objective history. Rather, they're written as in a ritual context. The texts are a tool for a ritual that is being performed. So the primary uh, method of communication is something you do. It's a it's a dance, it's an incantation, it's a ceremony, a liturgy. It's not something you read, and, and the texts serve that. So 
Well, look what we have here. Darius gold plates, 511 BCE. These plates are found in the Apadana Palace in Persepolis, Iran, by King Darius, Persian king. The palace, I mean, there's a couple columns and in, in the floor left. It used to be this palatial, hypostyle uh, hall full of, I mean, the pillars are 60 feet tall. It would have been just grandiose to walk in. But this is where King Darius uh, greeted guests and conducted official royal business, you know, from his throne. Um, what they found, they have this big floor uh, of, of the palace that has survived. And as they begin excavating in the four corners of the floor of the main hall, they found four stone boxes that had been buried subfloor. Sub and in each stone box was a single metal plate. Two of them were made of silver and two of them were made of gold. And when they opened up the uh, silver plates, they didn't even recognize what it was because the silver had uh, burnished so badly. It, you know, it just it, uh, it looked like decayed metal, black brown. But when they opened up the two boxes with the golden plates, they looked brand new. I mean, this picture is a picture of one of them. It was, it was shiny gold. Um, on the gold plates is a single inscription written three times in three different languages. So it's a trilingual plate. It's the same writing system, cuneiform, but, you know, as English is used to write English and Spanish and German, this writing system was used to write three different languages on this plate, but each of the paragraphs say the same thing. Uh, and it's a short paragraph. It, it describes the extent of King Darius's kingdom. I rule from this city to this city, from this land to this land, and that it ends with an invocation of a blessing of the God. Quote, may Ahura Mazda, the greatest of gods, protect me and my royal house, end quote. So um, it's, it's a short text block repeated three times. Well, what was the plate used for? It was used to dedicate the temple. It was a dedica dedicatory ritual, which, you know, whenever someone greeted the king in his palace, he walked on the floor, which had four ritual tablets buried in it that described the extent of the kingdom and had a blessing of the God blessing the kingdom. So whenever anyone walked in there, they were entering into a sort of political divine realm blessed by Ahura Mazda that regulated the size of the kingdom. So it is a ritual tablet put in the floor to dedicate the temple. This is part of that sacred place we talked about last time. They're binding heaven and earth. They're binding the land with the sky, with the human and divine realms, uh, dedicating the palace so that the king can then orchestrate his business under divine decree. Um, so that context is very important. And we'll see as we go along this is what all the ancient context is with these uh, gold plates. Um, they're large, 13 by 13 inches, and they have a textual density of one word per square inch. Okay. 
The second uh, example they use is the Pergi golden tablets found in Pergi, Italy, central Italy. Uh, these date to about the same time, 500 BCE, and they're the same thing. It's a dedicatory tablet written on gold, uh, slightly smaller. Um, and these are written, there were three tablets that were found in calling these tablets, uh, they're really pounded gold leaf. Uh, two of them were written in Etruscan, one in Phoenician, and they are say the same thing, dedicating the temple in which they were found in central Italy to the supreme goddess Astarte. They state the king who built the temple, the date, and invoke a blessing from the goddess, quote, and may the years of the statue of the deity in her temple be years as numerous as the stars, end quote. This has a three and a half word per square inch textual density. So again, it's the same thing. These, do you see the holes on the circumference of those tablets? They believe they were nailed to a wooden post. And uh, so the Darius plates were put in a stone box and it's a single plate with writing on only one side, um, put in a stone box on, on a rather thick tablet actually, in the foundation floor, these Pergi plates are thinner stone or gold leaves nailed to um, nailed to a post. But of course, when they excavated it, the post had long decayed. And so they're just finding this. So they don't know exactly in what uh, con architectural context uh, these were originally put in. Uh, but it's it's the same thing. These plates are a dedicatory ritual uh, invoking a divine blessing into the place. And the ritual is sealed to the statue of the goddess in the place. Again, they're binding heaven and earth at the sacred place. Um, and then oh, uh, the final example they give is the Etruscan gold book. This is very interesting uh, to me. This dates between five and 600 BCE. Uh, it was found in Bulgaria, just north of Greece, and is a Thracian artifact. And this is the oldest book known to exist. And they're defining a book as leaves bound together by some sort of binding. In this case, there's two metal gold rings that bind six gold leaves. These are approximately two inches by two inches square. Um, so it's very small and uh, they have inscribed, they're made of 24 karat gold written on only one side and yeah. the Etruscan gold book was um, by two, uh, the text is untranslated, but includes illustrations of priests, a horse rider, a mermaid, a harp and soldiers, as well as Etruscan writing and uh, found in a no noble burial. So this is in a burial context, but they have found a series of what are called Orphic gold tablets. And they've now found uh, over 30 of these um, found with the buried dead. Uh, this is the on only one that I'm aware of that's actually several leaves bound together. The rest of them are a single golden leaf with an inscription on them. They tend to be about two by two inches large, 
They're found buried on the mouth or on the head or on the chest of the deceased. And uh, they have inscriptions on them. And uh, the ones that can be translated in ancient Greek, they're instructions on how to journey through the underworld after you die. So it's sort of like a endowment, right? A ritual endowment, you or, or similar to the pyramid text or coffin text. It's an, a series of instructions that teach you how to go through. There's different roads in the underworld and you need a guide. And if you take the wrong road, it's not going to be very helpful for you. The problem with uh, these uh, Orphic gold tablets is that they all don't give the same directions. <laughs> I guess so, that depends where you're headed. So, That's a problem. <laughs> so there's a, a left-hand road and a right-hand road. And some say take the left-hand road and some say take the right-hand road. You know, and so that what, what that tells us is uh, there's a cast of Orphic priests, but they're not correlated, right? They, they, they belong from different towns or cities and they have slightly different tra traditions and they're uh, using slightly different ritual um, directions. So depend and, and these are extraordinarily expensive to make. And uh, so only the upper class, only the wealthy are buying them. This is one of the things in the ancient world. Almost all these rituals for the afterlife are reserved only for the elite because they're, the, they're the only ones who can afford all the expensive ritual regalia in order to uh, go through the initiation. They generally re required animal sacrifices, uh, uh, initiations in you know in the Greco-Roman mysteries you you went through this whole initiation in an in a temple generally underground which means you had basically to pay all the priests and priestesses uh, rent the temple I mean extraordinarily expensive the average person 99 percent of the population couldn't do this so their view of the afterlife never gets recorded uh, and, and it's so blank in some parts of it that Scholars assume they didn't have a view of the afterlife, which I think is problematic. But bottom line is, this is a afterlife ritual. Uh, we don't know the textual density uh, because it's six gold leaves. Half of it are images and the other half is text. Uh, but I doubt it's more than three words per square inch. Having said that, um, I actually went through several dozen examples of writing on gold plates when I was studying this. And the densest textual density I could find was on one Orphic gold tablet. We'll talk about that here in, in a few slides. In any case, here's their top three examples of writing on gold plate. None of these are in a, an American context. Uh, we've got Etruscan. We've got Phoenician, uh, we've got uh, Persian, right? They all belong to about the same time period, uh, five to 600 BCE, but they are all texts serving a ritual purpose. Uh, this is not what the Book of Mormon is. And so to say then, which is what they're saying, this is proof for the veracity of the Book of Mormon is uh, just incorrect. Look, every Mormon church 
has a baptismal font. Everyone that I've seen, even even in other countries, well, the stake center has a baptismal font. Um, a baptismal font is essentially a big tub with a faucet. You know, in in the rich countries, warm water comes out. Everywhere else, your your baptism is pronounced in high squeaks. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, uh, look, what if I went in and uh, the day before the Sabbath, I uh, sh bathed and I shaved and I cut my hair in the baptismal font? What would people say? What if I uh, took my Eucharist chalice, the, the, the golden cup in a ritual context that is used to serve the wine of the sacrament, and I uh, served a bowl of chili with a salad with it. I used my altar as a charcuterie board and served cheese and crackers. What would people say? Sacrilegious. Um, well, what would, yeah, what would the religious people of your religion say? Well, a lot of them wouldn't say anything. They'd just hang you. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> um, uh, when you have... You know, a baptismal font, a Eucharist chalice are are used for specific acts that bind the individual to the eternal. They are holy artifacts used in a holy ritual context. This is what we're looking at. They're writing on gold because the gold is seen as attuned to the divine realm. They could have just as easily written this on papyri or on animal skin, but they didn't. They wrote it on gold because gold is the holy artifact, the holy metal that is linking heaven and earth. And they're writing a ritual text on it. In this case, uh, two dedicatory oaths or an afterlife ritual, which binds them to the holy realm. Uh, in two in two contexts, to the sacred place, in one context, an afterlife ritual. You would not write a thousand-year history in this way. They're using it as a holy artifact. There's there's a, a a function that the baptismal font serves, and you're not to bathe and shave in it. There's a function that the holy of uh, the uh, Eucharist chalice serves, and you're not to eat your chili and soup and salad in it. Um, and so these arguments they're making, we have so many examples. Well, actually, I can't find a single example anywhere at any time, in any time frame, in any culture that writes an objective, fact-filled history on any kind of metal. Uh, so these arguments they're making uh, do not prove the veracity of the Book of Mormon, they disprove the veracity of the Book of Mormon. This is not the argument you want to make. And yet we just saw this is their number one archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon. And it's disproving what they are trying to promote. Well, just to be a little bit thorough, I'm going to show uh, the three other uh, examples they used at, at the Book of Mormon Central. Here are the silver scrolls. Uh, they called them silver plates. They have two examples. Sure enough, two silver scrolls were found um, 
yeah, let me. Uh, in a burial. And these silver scrolls actually contain the oldest surviving quote from the Hebrew Bible currently known. And so what are they? 600 BCE, though, you know, that's very early. The uh, apologists are excited. Hey, time of Lehi, we got writing on metal, right? Not only are we discussing the writing of the uh, golden plates, we're, we're discussing the writing of the brass plates, right? We have to have the entire Bible from creation to the writings of Jeremiah with the entire book of Isaiah, because Nephi quotes from it, on a set of brass plates, uh, bound together in a book. Um, so, well, what do we have here? We have a one by four inch piece of silver foil that had uh, basically Numbers chapter six, verses 24 through 26 written on it. Here's what that says. Quote, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace, end quote. It was written on this one by four inch silver leaf and then rolled like into a little scroll and then worn as an amulet, right? And so what we have here is a ritual prayer amulet. This verse is an invocation to Yahweh to protect the individual from harm. The Lord bless you and keep you. It is so it sort of belongs to the magic worldview in that they've got a, a token that binds them to the deity and to the divine, uh, which will protect them that they wear around. Um, you, you know, it's sort of like wearing, you know, people wear energy crystals ar around around their neck. Uh, for protection and for, you know, different cosmic benefits or essential oils. They douse themselves in essential oils for uh, certain uh, benefits. And, I, you know, I'm not uh, degrading energy crystals or essential oils, uh, but I can say the Mormon priesthood degrades them. Hey, you know, don't do that. We've got the priesthood. And in the same breath, they quote the Silver Scrolls as evidence for the Book of Mormon when in fact, when in fact the silver scrolls are being used like the energy crystals and the essential oils. <laughs> Point. Well, you're the only one that would get that, John. That's why you're making us laugh. laugh. I but laugh. Now, I know. That's our favorite part when you laugh because it makes us understand, oh my goodness, how do, do we not know this? But now we do. That's very clear. So, so, so these scrolls are the equivalent of taking maybe a post-it note and writing something and just rolling it up and, and, putting it somewhere that's this, correct this is not a book of scripture it's a little no note. no and again 600 bc it's a ritual prayer amulet the text is a ritual it's a ritual prayer you they probably sung and chanted this prayer as as a prayer of protection much like you you know the prayers you you say with the rosary beads the prayers that um, like the sacrament prayer that you're binding yourself to the, the Eucharist, uh, to, you know, the blood and, and, uh, flesh of Christ, uh, to renew yourself. This is, this is, uh, cosmic attunement, a ritual prayer amulet. And by the way, it only has five words per square inch textual density. This is going to be a real problem pretty quickly. 
Um, and so that is what those silver scrolls are. Again, not. This not is the not the Mormon argument is. you want to make. This is arguing against your claim for the Book of Mormon. It's not arguing for your claim for the Book of Mormon. These writings on metal plates are both feet planted in the previous thought world that is not the thought world of the Book of Mormon that we talked about in the first two episodes. These writings on all these plates are, are writings of rituals in, in the, the analogical thought world of, of binding heaven and earth. So do you think that they're focusing more on just the fact that, oh, it's metal. Look, there's metal. So it must be metal, right? They're not really thinking about the context that's what or the they're doing or anything they're like saying that. It's i just metal. Didn't find any writing on metal yes. plates and yes. that's going to prove it but that's not uh that's not honest that's not history that that's inappropriate and in fact i've just shown here's their top four examples and they argue against what the brass plates and gold plates actually were if i'm going to find brass plates or gold plates i'm going to read in so far one to five word per inch uh, textual density, a ritual. That's that's what I expect. And everywhere I turn, that's what I get. All right. Now, the Mayan golden plates really interested me. Uh, and actually, uh, it took me a long time because when I first Googled Mayan writing on golden plates, I got nothing. And it was actually a couple of years of, of just actually just researching and reading about the Maya and the cultures of Central America and the American Southwest that I stumbled upon a reference to the Mayan golden discs with writing on them. And, and when I found that reference, uh, it took me a while, but I found a dissertation uh, written in the 1970s. Uh, by Meredith Daniel Paxton, 1975, entitled Gold Disc from the Sacred Cenote at Chichen Itza. So this is what Book of Mormon Central is citing as the examples of writing on golden plates in Mesoamerica. They found 29 golden discs. All of them were thrown into a cenote. You know what a cenote is? It's a underground watering hole basically the yucatan peninsula is this massive limestone plate and the limestone is very porous and they have these monsoon rains and it rains and it just feel it, it per percolates down through the limestone and the limestone creates channels and caves there's thousands of little caves throughout the yucatan underground well some of them get quite large they fill up with water and these are called cenotes as it turns out Almost every Mayan city is built near a cenote, which is pretty easy to do because there's so many of them. But they use the cenote as an architectural requirement to build a Mayan city. The cenote was your connecting point to the underworld, right? You had a temple with, you had a pyramid with a temple built on top, and that connected you to the sky world. You had a cenote uh, with water in it that you would perform certain rituals in or throw certain votive offerings in, and this would connect you to the underworld. So you were binding yourself to every level of the cosmos in your rituals so that when you went and did your daily 
living from agriculture to trade to politics to warfare. You had certain rituals that you did uh, to bind yourself to heaven, earth, underworld uh, that allowed you to do these things. Well, sure enough, this is what the mind golden discs were used for. First off, they're dated to between 700 and 1000 CE, AD, right? This is centuries after the Book of Mormon. Um, the, they range from four inches in diameter. The largest one is 11 inches in diameter. They're hard to reconstitute because each, each plate has an, a, a drawing inscribed on them. A few of them, I've got one pulled up, does have some Mayan glyphs written in the circumference. But the main part of the disc, and on most discs, there is no writing. It's just the scene that's being displayed. And uh, all of them appear to be combat scenes. Uh, a warrior uh, um, defeating an enemy or a warrior confronted with uh, a divine personage. There is the earth monster there with representation of the underworld where they were driving powers to, to vanquish their enemies to the underworld. Uh, they're combat scenes. Reconstituting the images on the plates was very difficult because each one of these plates was ritually killed. That is, they, they performed some ritual for them. They threw them in the cenote. They did a ritual and threw the plate in the cenote, but before they threw the plate in the cenote, they destroyed it. They tore it into pieces. So they did a ritual, they destroyed it and threw the pieces into the cenote. So um, the scholar that dredged these golden pieces up had to, well, first he dredged them up and took them to the Peabody Museum without telling anyone. <laughs> so, so they get displaced. Uh, but then they had to reconstruct uh, them, you know, painstakingly uh, by putting several different discs, their pieces together. Uh, and so, and then in Is the- Is that what those lines are in that picture? You can kind of see it looks like it's split in half. In yeah, yeah. So, so many, of the, many of the reconstructions are incomplete. Many of them, you know, have lines and folds in it. I, I put this one, I- uh, the dissertation had uh, nine or ten, uh, you know, reproductions of what they were able to put back together of nine or ten plates. And this was the most complicated one. So most of them have much more simplistic images. Um, but this one is a full scene. You've got water. It's pretty degraded, but you've got, um, I don't know if you can see my mouse my mouse disappears somehow um <laughs> on the upper left you have someone flying down uh he's laying horizontal his head is to the left and it looks like there's this wind coming out of his mouth do you see that let me see if i can yeah oh. dang technology <laughs> my mouse is not working no and it's good you're describing it because a, a lot of um our viewers are listeners and we're just hearing about it so yeah we can well i, we can I understand I, oh what yeah you're, you're talking about. the guy with the feather hat yes that that yeah. looks like something's okay. coming out of his mouth yes okay, like that's a, a wind okay. wind yeah like he's yes blowing you see that? Or something. yes mm -hmm, yes mm -hmm. 
uh, right above the two guys on a skateboard. Yeah. <laughs> <There are laughs> and the alien on the left-hand side. Yeah, there you go. We got it. Uh, that wind is We're called kidding. a speech scroll. <laughs> and we find that at other places. And so that's indicating that that person is speaking or singing. Uh, so we don't know what he's saying or singing, but it's indicating that he is in the middle of saying something, probably a ritual phrase. This is a reproduction of the ritual they're doing. So once again, uh, the Mayan gold disc is a ritual artifact. It's a ritual votive offering. They are offering an object to the gods to acquire a special blessing. Given that almost all the scenes are combat scenes and that the plates are ritually destroyed, it seems to indicate that they're offering these plates before a battle or after winning a battle as a way to garner either divine aid by the gods or divine thanks after winning the battle to the gods. You know, we don't, we don't know if it's before or after the battle. Um, so this is what the, the Mayan golden plates are that a Book of Mormon central cites. And once again, it's a ritual object uh, in a ritual context. Uh, there is no textual density. Unfortunately, the dissertation did not have a translation of those Mayan glyphs on the perimeter. Um, but the textual uh, density would be enormously small, again, within our one to six words per square inch. Um, and so this is what they're used for. Uh, I don't see how this helps their case. Again, this is arguing against their case. This is not the thought world of the Book of Mormon, the genre of text of the Book of Mormon. Uh, it's, it's completely different. It, 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 it's a completely different epistemology. So, again, this isn't helpful to their argument. I do have, they did mention the Copper Scroll, and I, I did put it up here. This is the far right image, and that image you're seeing is actually a reproduction. It's not the actual Copper Scroll. Um, the Copper Scroll is interesting because it's the one minute. So I looked at several uh, metal objects, uh, went over a lot of the Orphic gold plates, but there are bronze plates. Look, there are lots of lead plates that have been found. Again, they're used for rituals. Generally, the lead or tin plates are cursed tablets. Someone wants, uh, they, they have a law case. They had courts back then. And they want to be victorious in their law case. And, and you know, their public defender, like almost all of them, is not very good. <laughs> and so they, they take, they take, a a uh, a tablet and they're using lead and tin not gold or silver maybe because it's cheaper but again they're they're pronouncing a curse and a lot of these metals are being used as an assonant resonance to the purpose of what their use is for a gold plate is being used for a ritual to tie you to the divine sky world right or to the divine underworld a silver plate is being used for a ritual prayer amulet um, a tin or lead plate is being used for a curse. So they have a court case and they want to curse the person they're in court against. So then they will write a curse on the tablet and uh, then perform a ritual and, and curse the, the other side. Again, this is a form of sympathetic 
magic, like your rock crystal or your essential oil, you're, you're acquiring divine aid through ritual means, right? This is what we should be finding on the brass plates and the gold plates in the Book of Mormon context in these date ranges, in these cultures. But we're getting something completely different. We're getting a complete anachronistic text on an anachronistic medium in an anachronistic book. Uh, the gold plates and the brass plates literally are an iPhone in the hand of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so, but the Copper Scroll, however, is an exception, and I like finding exceptions. This is not a ritual tablet, uh, unlike the other tablets th that are mentioned. The copper, first off, it's 94 and a half inches by 11.8 inches. It's almost eight feet long. It's huge. It's pounded copper plate, and it uh, is a banking scroll. On it are uh, several columns of text listing 64 places the temple priests hid gold and silver treasure. And so it's a banking account listing the money. Uh, this is 5 to 100 CE. Um, you know, the uh, second temple is sacked by the Romans in the first century. So... They're probably taking their bank vault and they're going out and putting all the treasure in different places uh, and hiding it. And, you know, you want to presumably retrieve it and find it. And how are you going to do that when you've spread it out all over the countryside? Well, they decide we better write this down. <laughs> and Well, first off, half of us might die. So we better write it down so that we have an account of where we've hidden all the money. And, and so they write it in metal, but it's not gold or silver. It's not lead or tin, it's copper, which is really interesting. To me, this is probably the best example a Mormon could use to analogize, uh, yeah, not the Book of Mormon with ancient writing on plates, but modern Mormonism with ancient writing on plates, because the Copper Scroll is essentially a description of their shell companies where they hid all the money. <laughs> I was going to say, I see those parallels completely. Does it say Ensign Peak at the top of that? I can't read the script, but maybe it does. <laughs> where, where, where was this scroll found? Uh, this was... Uh, that's a good question. I, I, uh, the Qumran, Qumran, Dead Sea Scrolls. Qumran. Okay. Scrolls. So this that's is not in the new world. This is old world. No. Okay. Old okay. world, uh, Hebrew context, uh, five to 100, the first century CE, um, 1.3 words per square inch textual density. But literally all the other examples I looked at uh, with writing on metal plates, all of them were in a ritual context. This was the outlier. Uh, and so, and it's a banking transcript. Uh, so it's just important to know. This so still, what you're saying is there's a chance the Book of Mormon. I was is just going to say that there's a chance. <laughs> it's important well, to put speaks it out. to John's scholarship. I it's mean, a, he's it, willing to say, yeah. No, well, I, I actually have even... I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to strong arm their argument as best I can. So, um, uh, there, there is a chance. Uh, well, no, there's not because the text is in that. 
you know, there's a one percent probability. That's you know, that's where we're at. But there's the Copper Scroll. So right, and that's not a history. That's we're not talking about a history, no. a literary construct of looking forward, looking back. This is a you know, this is yeah. a ledger basically. A so different BC. from the others, yep. but a 600 BCE, you don't have a written history, and uh, you never get that in any time frame on any metal in any culture a written history so um this is required you have to find that if you don't find that all these other examples aren't helping you in fact they're arguing against you um finally they did mention uh tumbaga and lots of people have gone over this i'm I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. Tumbaga is a gold copper alloy. Sometimes it's actually mixed with silver or, or other metals that they naturally find in the ores of their mountains. They do have plenty of copper, gold, and silver deposits. Um, they, gold and copper is melted together. It does create an alloy. It is more pliable and more durable than gold. Um and of course, what is it used for? Do we have a single example of a Tumbaga plate with writing on it? No, we don't. Do we have a single example of Tumbaga plate bound in a book with a history on it? No, we don't. Do, here, they use Tumbaga to create ritual objects, religious objects, and royal objects, because the royalty, the kings and queens were the only people who could afford to have these objects made. So they were used as ornamentation for ritual and royal regalia. Okay. Um, furthermore, the, the full smelting date range uh, where we get this is in the Moche culture. That's 200 BC to 600 CE. That's a nice date range for Book of Mormon. But this is in Northern South America. This is Peru. Uh, it's slowly, this technology slowly goes north. It enters into Panama and Ecuador um, in this date range, but it doesn't make it to Mesoamerica until 800 CE. And so um, this is four centuries after the Book of Mormon timeline. And they're using this example uh, as, ha, we found Tumbaga. It might work. Uh, and so, so the, the gold plates were made out of Tumbaga. Well, uh, it's, it's centuries too late for the Book of Mormon culture. And again, you have to ask yourself if they're creating stacks of plates, you know, it's not just the gold plates Mormon and Moroni make, right? You've got the gold plates of Nephi. We're told of several other plates, plates, not scrolls, not parchments, plates that are being kept, the large plates of Nephi, which is the entire account of the entire uh, history of the Nephite civilization. There are a library of plates. So this is a, a manufacturing process. And sure enough, 99 to 95% of it is lost. Uh we, you know, maybe we don't find any plates, but we're going to be finding all kinds of writing and all the accoutrements surrounding this manufacturing process. We should be finding metallurgy, forges, 
um, in cities because every city's keeping a record. And if every city is keeping a record on plates, every city's got a blacksmith, a goldsmith, a Dumbaga smith of some sort. Um, and again, we, you know, we've already gone over, we should be finding thousands of scraps of writing everywhere and, and we're not finding any of this. So uh, again, this is argument that argues against the gold plates. It doesn't argue for the gold plates. And John, can I ask is... Heartland, sorry, we have so many questions. Go can ahead, I ask Rebecca. Heartland, none of this is anywhere in the, in the Heartland idea of where the Book of Mormon took place. There is no metallurgy ever developed pre-colonial contact east of the Mississippi ever. Okay. So the Heartland model not only has no writing, I mean, the writing that appears amongst Native American tribes is post-colonial contact. And the metallurgy that appears in, you know, in the same region is post-colonial contact. There's no writing or metallurgy in, in the Heartland area. And, and this is one of the places that I see that they always go to that they can find any example anywhere. And then they say, oh, we got rid of that anachronism. Well, in order to get rid of the anachronism, it has to be what it was, what it described. You can't say, oh, we found it somewhere completely out of the area that we're saying is Book of Mormon uh, geography, and then say this is what they were using when it didn't exist in whatever area you're trying to claim is Book of Mormon geography. It has to exist in the time, in the place, and be used for the purpose that you're claiming. You can't just take pieces and build all these pieces from every item from across the world that you can find and say, here's a little example that was all thrown together in one culture at one place that we can't find and have no record of. I couldn't have said it better. That's exactly. So far, they're using the Eucharist cup to serve chili and salad and the baptismal font to shave and cut their hair. That's, that's going to be our thumbnail <laughs> for this episode. <laughs> and that's wrong. That's wrong. So, um, do, do yeah. you know the weights of this tumbaga? Because I can't imagine that if you're making an alloy of gold, that it's making it 20 times lighter that than lighter. it would have originally been. You know, I look into that. I'm not, not a metallurgist. Um, and I could not find, right. If you're so, some of the tubanga they have found is like 90% gold, 10% copper. Some of it is 90% copper, 10% gold. Uh, the process of combining these um, metals into an alloy, I don't know if that changes the alloy's density and metric weight. It seems to me that if you have an alloy of gold and copper, you, then your weight of that alloy is going to be in the range of the gold and copper. I, I, um, and so if I have a stack of six inch Tumbaga plates, um, it, how heavy is that going to be? To me, it's still too heavy. But all the uh, apologists say, oh, no, the metallurgists have looked at it and it should be about 60 pounds. I, you know, if, if, if you had copper plates, you're probably at 80 pounds, 90 pounds, which is significantly more than the 40 to 60 pounds that everyone said the plates were. So I don't, you know, I, 
I, I don't know the answer to that question, Landon, but to me, it seems still too heavy. But we're going to go into, you know, the physical measurements and see what the apologists say. And, you know, sure enough, as long as you play with the math long enough, you can make it work. And we're, we're just going to look at that. Um, anyway, any other questions? Tumbaga doesn't work because it's not in the right place, time or uh, cultural use. All right. Now, here is the best strong arming I could do for for their argument. And it's also a really interesting tablet. I don't know. Is this interesting? You guys? Oh, yeah. Just <laughs> oh, my God. That you even have to ask that question right now is our viewers are probably hitting the table. going, Are you serious, Dr. John? This is absolutely incredible. This is just amazing. And, and you do such a good job of explaining it so clearly for the layman. Right. I think we're all understanding this. So all right. yes, please continue. Uh, this is a bronze plate. And I really like this find. Uh, and sure enough, the apologists can use, I mean, I didn't actually read a lot of apologists talking about this. They, they were focused on the other things I've already shown you. Uh, so this is called the Byblos syllabary. It's found in Byblos, Lebanon. And it's a, a writing system that has not been cracked. So we don't know what it says. Its date range is interesting. It's four, uh, 15, it's between 1400 and 1750 BCE. So it's really early. And this is our transition point where we start getting, we find in this date range, the first alphabet. And we, we start getting syllabaries as opposed to logo syllabaries. So we, we start getting transitions. Um, they have found basically 10 inscriptions in this writing system. So here's one argument the apologists can make. Ha, we found a writing system that is uncoded. See, uncoded, untranslated. See, they can be lost. Well, of course they can be lost. I've never been, not been arguing that. There are writing systems that are lost, but the writing system is also found in a cultural context. Uh, Biblos Lebanon, 18th to 15th centuries. Uh, it's going to be um, connected to surrounding languages in linguistic systems and sure enough all the scholars say this so so you know we can't argue a brand new writing system out of context well in the 10 examples they have found they've uh this is how they know it's a syllabary remember there's different writing systems uh mayan is a logo syllabary a picture picture writing that represents both words and also syllables. Generally, the syllables are a consonant and a vowel. Sometimes it can be a couple consonants. Um, they know this is a syllabary, not a logo syllabary, and they know it's not an alphabet. How do they know that? Well, they've got 10, in, 10 inscriptions, two on bronze tablets, four on bronze spatulas, uh, finely pounded bronze leaf and four on stone inscriptions, a couple altars and pillars. Out of all the examples they have found this writing system, they have found a couple thousand symbols and they've written down all the symbols and out of the couple thousand examples, they have found 114 unique characters. Okay? That tells them it's a syllabary. 
why is that telling me it's a syllabary? An alphabet is one symbol or character for one sound. The human mouth only makes so many sounds. Uh, you generally have 20, 24 consonants, three, four, five, six vowels. Okay. A total of between 20 and 30 symbols make an alphabet. There's a few alphabets that have a few more, you know, 33, 34 symbols, but all alphabets have a couple dozen symbols, plus or minus a few. That's the advantage of an alphabet. You don't have to learn a lot of symbols. Um, well, here's what happens. They take a consonant, let's say the letter B, and they wet it to a vowel, A-I-O-U. And so you can pronounce B with ba, b, bi, bo, boo, right? Well, they write a separate symbol for each of those sounds, for each of those syllables. Ba is one symbol, b, bo, bi, boo. You have five symbols for one consonant wed to all your vowel sounds. Make sense? Yeah. Well, if you have 20 consonants and five vowels, your writing system will have 100 symbols. Okay? Well, this writing system has 114 symbols. It's not an alphabet because that's way too many for an alphabet. It's not a logosyllabary because logosyllabaries have symbols for words. And therefore, their symbology, their graphemes are hundreds long. Mayan, cuneiform, you know, uh, Sumerian, Akkadian, Egyptian hieroglyphs. Those have hundreds of symbols in the writing system. So it's not a logosyllabary. It's not an alphabet. With 114 symbols, they know that each one of these symbols on this plate represents a syllable. Most of them, you know, probably a consonant with a vowel sound. Most words are either one, two, three, four syllables long. So that means a combination of, the, of these characters are going to create one word. Makes sense? Yeah. Take yeah. several uh, so, of these symbols to make a word. That's correct. A couple of these maybe. symbols to make a word. Well, what I liked about this bronze tablet, this is the largest bronze tablet. And it's 8.27 by 4.72 inches. Um, sadly, I could not find the thickness. I, I looked at every description. I even found the museum where there was a whole write-up on the bibliosyllabary objects. And I emailed the museum because <laughs> I wanted to know what the thickness of this bronze plate was. I emailed them twice and I never got a response. So I never could find the thickness. Just from the pictures, I can tell that it looks several millimeters thick. Yeah, you can see that compressed. Yes. That edge uh, right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, bronze or whatever it is yeah so i don't but uh i uh, this irritated me because i really <laughs> did want to know how thick it was what i liked about it is these are the only objects i found were writings on both sides all those other examples writings on only one side no matter how thick the plate was but these had writings on both sides uh so this bronze tablet is the largest it has a total of 459 characters on. So, you know, on each side, 459 characters. They're etched in the metal with a chisel. They can tell they're, they're being chiseled in. It's not translated, but that gives us a textual density 
of 5.7 characters per square inch. This is characters per square inch, not words per square inch. So we're probably looking at about three words, if you half that, if two symbols represent a word, you're probably looking at three words per square inch textual density. Um, now, I didn't have a picture of the bronze leafs that were part of this collection. This is a tablet. They found four bronze, what they call spatulas. And those, they did give a description. They were one millimeter thick. So they're pounded very thin, almost like bronze leaf, like gold leaf. They're, they're pounded very thin and they're shaped in a leaf, right? It's not a tablet. It's, uh, it's uh, shaped as a flower stem uh, or leaf. And it has writing on both sides. So this is one millimeter thick. That is extremely thin. It has this uh, uh, syllabary writing on both sides. However, on the plates, the writing is very uniform and neat and elegant. And on the bronze leaves, it's pretty sloppy because it's very thin. And so they're just scrawling quickly, you know, the letters across on both sides. Again, untranslated, but the leading scholarship believes that those bronze leaves were labels attached to votive offerings. Once again, we're in a ritual context. These were used as um, ritual offerings, much like the Mayan gold discs. You would, you would uh, give an object to the deity in the temple, and this is what they were used for. So a ritual context. I would expect that this bronze tablet is also in a ritual context because there, you know, if it's not, this is your MacGuffin. Um, anyway, again, textual... and not in Mesoamerica. This was not found in the Americas. No, this is Lebanon, the Levant. Okay. So just another example somewhere in the world of something that's similar with some writing on metal. Okay. It's the only example I found out of all the examples I looked at that had writing on both sides of the metal. It's the only example I found that had thin, really thin bronze plate. It's really bronze leaf with writing on both sides. And so this to me would be their strongest argument. Again, 18th to 15th century BC on the other side of the world, probably in a ritual context. So it still is not anything. It's as Landon said, they're looking for any any kind of correspondence, any kind of parallelism. Well, that's not how, not how scholarship they, they could done. make the argument that uh, brass was a term for bronze early, early on, and that this mm -hmm. is a brass plate that Lehi could have had access to being in the old world and could have carried it over. But again, as you point out, it, it isn't a written book. It is, it, it's ritual. And notice there's uh, no uh, holes in the sides of the plate to bind into a book. You know, all these things are single tablets, except for that Etruscan golden book, which is a two inch by two inch series of six leaves bound together by two rings uh, with pictures on it. So again, in a ritual context, these are not the objects you're looking for. These are not the droids you're looking for. All right. Well, so after looking at, um, oh, 
I looked at probably 30 or 40 examples of writing on metal plates when I did this. <laughs> and I was satisfied that uh, except for the copper scroll and a couple untranslated pieces, everything was written in a ritual context. So again, this tells me the Book of Mormon is anachronistic. They're using a complete, you know, chili in the cup, shaving in the font. Um, but still, I went through and I looked at all the dimensions of all the descriptions of the gold plates that Joseph Smith supposedly had. And here are, so let's go through them. Description of the golden plates that Joseph Smith got from the angel Moroni. Joseph Smith says in the 1840s, they were about six by eight inches. So each plate was six inches wide, eight inches tall. Oliver Cowdery, uh, who's one of the witnesses, says they were seven by six inches. So slightly wider, but slightly shorter. Martin Harris, who also held the plates, said they were seven by eight inches. So slightly larger than Joseph Smith. David Whitmer, seven by eight inches. Lucy Mack Smith, six by eight inches. So there's variances in their recall. No one, <clears throat> for whatever reason, actually took the plates and measured them. No one took the plates and counted the leaves. No one did a thorough examination. All the descriptions are, are descriptions from memory. Oh, they were about this. Oh, it was about this. Oh, I think I saw this. Um, so, you know, that's interesting. Seems to be sort with human, human error, oh. though. Uh, you know, if several people measured something, they'd all kind of say. Yeah, no, this is this is all within. Uh, uh, they're all saying the same thing. So this tells us we are, you know, I'm going to go with Joseph Smith's description uh, because he had the most contact with the plates. So I, my plates the, in my example are going to be six by eight inches, but they all are pretty close to that. Okay. But that is very interesting that, you know, no, no counting the pages, no actual measurement. It's as if they were all just feeling it through a cloth, perhaps, or never, you know, actually accessing them, but just going, oh, look, okay, this seems to be, that's kind of what it sounds like to me. Yeah, yeah the providence of the plates is pretty sketchy <laughs> that's a whole so, other episode <laughs> so, so uh, uh i don't <clears throat> i yeah there's no there's no official measurement it's all on recall they're all pretty close i'm going to go by six by eight, eight inches yeah i you know look guys i'm not a mormon historian uh i know that there are different accounts a lot of people felt them through cloth a lot of people you know didn't actually see them some of them seem to see them in vision i you know i don't I, it's pretty sketchy what you know why don't we have them and why didn't we get a drawing of them um that would have been very easy to do to sit down and reproduce some of the plates with the just in a sketch with the writing on them or reproduce in a sketch what the whole stack looked like you know we don't get any of that we don't get any measurements um, so this is what we get. So this is all, all we have to work off of. Uh, David Whitmer does tell us that the plates were bound by three D-shaped rings on, he says, the back side, but it's on one side. So in my estimation, 
I'm trying to figure out the surface area for the writing space on each plate. And what I do is I take a six by eight inch space. I give it a quarter inch margin and a half inch margin for the three ring plates. This gives me 40 square inches of writing surface per side. And being that they're written on both sides, this gives us 80 square inches of writing surface per plate. Okay, this is all I'm doing. Personally, I think I'm being extraordinarily generous. A quarter inch is uh, really small. Maybe they wrote all the way to the edges and all around the uh, binding. Um, uh, you know, maybe we could squeeze in a few more square inches of writing space. Uh, but, but I, you know, I, I think 40 square inches is a very generous fair assessment for our writing surface, 80 square inches per plate. Well, how thick were the plates? Again, everyone except Martin Harris says they're about six inches deep, six inches thick. There's a stack of plates, six inches deep. Martin Harris actually tells us four inches deep. And that is interesting to me because that's kind of, that's a, a pretty big difference. And then uh, Joseph Smith Sr., he has a description of one inch deep. <laughs> so uh, he was the outlier. Uh, so, I, you know, everyone's saying six inches deep, except Martin Harris, who says they're four inches deep. But here's the kicker. The plates, a, a large portion of the plates were sealed. They were untranslated. And again, David Whitmer, um, I believe, I, I, mean, I should have wrote the date down, uh, first says that about half the plates were sealed, but then he comes back in a written testimony and says, well, actually about two thirds of the plates were sealed. Orson Pratt, who never saw the plates, but he spoke to the witnesses, writes an account where he says about two thirds of the plates were sealed. And this seems to be the uh, agreement that most of the plates were sealed. So two thirds of the plates are sealed. That If we go with six inches deep, which is what most people say, again, Martin Harris, he's, he's an outlier. He says half the plates were sealed, but he's only dealing with four inches of plates. So all these guys here at the top agree that there were two inches of translatable plates uh, and the rest were sealed, okay? So this gives us uh, two inches thick of plates, six by eight inches. Well, now we have to determine how thick each plate was. And this is going to give us a total square inch surface area. And this is how I'm going to determine my textual density, my words per square inch. I've already done this with the ancient examples, right? We're between one and six words per square inch. Uh, we'll talk about this. Well, I guess we'll talk about it now. So um, uh, Oliver Cowdery, so they all tell us that they're the thickness of tin or a pane of glass. This doesn't help me because I don't know what tin or glass that they're holding. And so I tried looking this up, you know, what, what was a, an average thickness of a pane of glass uh, in the 1830s and 40s? 
uh, I, you know, I couldn't find anything. Uh, what was the average thickness of uh, tin? Uh, and, you know, it depends on the context the tin is being used. So I, 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 I couldn't really find anything. I had in my notes as I was going through this, a couple of people saying they were almost an eighth of an inch thick. And boy, I just looked, I tore through all my reading, trying to find the source of that and I couldn't find it. So uh, well, you're saying it's a pain in the ass to find the thickness of a pane of glass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go, Landon, you said it. <laughs> well, I'm looking at uh, the ancient <clears throat> plates and, and, you know, we do have, uh, those bronze spatulas that are bronze leaf. Uh, and then the Orphic gold plates, not that are, are about two millimeters. Uh, and they're gold leaf. That's pretty thin. A lot of the rest of the stuff is closer. I mean, three millimeters is just under an eighth of an inch. Here's the thing though, uh, besides the bronze, everything's written on one side this is written on two sides and if you're writing on a gold alloy if it's too thin the engraving on one side will dimple the other side so it's got to be thick enough that you can engrave on both sides and this makes me think we're, we're probably in an ancient context looking at something closer to three millimeters as opposed to the other in any case, I do my calculations for three millimeter thick plate, two millimeter thick plate, and one millimeter thick plate. In order to get this to work, it has to be one millimeter thin. Uh, so let's just go over that. Here is, if it's three millimeters thick, you get 16 plates in two inches. Okay, uh, maybe even a little bit less. You've got to account for space between the plates, which I'm just dividing two inches by, you know, three millimeters, 0.11 inch. So, you know, that gives me 16 plates if, if I'm, you know, if it's solid, but it's going to be a little bit less than that, which actually isn't helpful for their argument. But if I have 16 plates written front and back, that's 16 times 80 square inches, that's 1,280 square inches of riding surface. Well, I know how many words are in the Book of Mormon, 270,000 English words, plus the lost 116 manuscript pages. Now, we don't have that word count, but we do have the manuscript pages of the 270,000 words, 468 manuscript pages. So I just divided 468, 270,000 words by 468. That gives, give, gives me an average word count per manuscript page. I multiplied that by 116, the lost manuscript pages. This gives me approximately an additional 65,000 words, which means the total word count on the original plates is in the range of 335,000 words. Okay. Are you following? Yep. Yep. That's a lot of words. Let's it's just pretty, say that. And so what, was the, what was the individual page again that you just said per page? Well, that gives us 10,469 words per side of each plate. Okay. Okay. That's what I was thinking. Okay. 10,500 words per side. Okay. Based off 16 plates. Okay. Right. Which means the small plates in Nephi, first Nephi through the words of Mormon, actually are about 65,000 words. They would take 
3.1 plates. So that portion of the Book of Mormon from the beginning to the words of Mormon would all be written on three plates. Th this other, is based on 10,469 10, words per plate. It would take up three if they could. Oh, per side of plate. On both per sides side. of the plates. If so it would be 21,000 words per plate. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right? <laughs> this is based off a three millimeter thick plate. You would need 21,000 words per plate. Okay. Well, we are in serious trouble. Already. <laughs> you know, well, again, the probability of an ancient culture writing a text with that textual density on a golden alloy is the same probability of a spaghetti monster flying a red sleigh on the winter uh -oh. solstice being pulled by seven flying cephalopods delivering presents to all the children every year. It's about that probability. So I'm not saying it's impossible. You <laughs> never do. You spaghetti never monster do. Probable. <laughs> um, you never do. So, okay. So let's go thinner. Let's go two millimeter plates, not three millimeter plates. In my mind, this is the thinnest you're going to get um, because you're inscribing on both sides a, a history. It, this is a lot of text you have to inscribe. You have to, uh, you can't play around with dimpling the other side. Those uh, bronze spatulas that were one millimeter thin. Uh, the writing on them was pretty sloppy because it was too easy to dimple the other side as they wrote on them. So two millimeters is probably the thinnest you're going to get if you're writing on each side of the plate. That gives you in two inches, again, it's probably fewer than this because I'm not allowing for space between the plates. It gives you 25 plates. 25 plates 80 square inches per plate, 40 per side, gives you 2,000 square inches of writing surface. Again, same, 335,000 words on the plates. Well, you divide one by the other, and that gives you 167.5 words per square inch. The other one, oh, I should have pulled that up. The other one was 262 words per square inch. Try writing 260 word, 262 words in a square inch of surface area. Okay. This, the thinner plate is giving us 167 and 168 words per square inch, 6,700 words per side of each plate. This would give us first Nephi through uh, chapters one through half of chapter eight on one side of the first plate. Uh, this is extreme textual density. In uh, the textual density of the ancient examples were what? One to six words per square inch. We are at 167.5 words per square inch. Uh, again, What's the probability of that? But it is reformed Egyptian, John. I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah, I'm just looking, the loophole. Just looking at the materials. I haven't gotten to the text. That'll be our next. Uh -oh. That'll be our uh -oh. next uh, podcast. 
Um, all right, here's my calculation for the one millimeter thick, um, which is really thin. And to write densely on each side of the plate uh, would take a really good trick. But here's the calculation. That gives us 50 plates in two inches. Again, it's going to be less than that because I haven't accounted for space between the plates. It gives us 4,000 square inches of writing surface, 84 words per square inch, 3,360 words per side of each plate. We're still at 84 words per square inch, right? Those bronze, those Biblis syllabary tablets had 5.7 characters per square inch, right? Not words, characters per square inch written on both sides, probably three words per square inch, maybe less. And here on our one millimeter calculation, we need 84 words per square inch. What point um, text is that in, uh, you know, if I go to my word uh, <laughs> and I want to print 84 words per square inch. Negative 37. Yeah. I think that's it. <laughs> well, look, when I did this calculation, um, I, I was blown away because I, to me, one, I just deconstructed the, its historicity. It can be a tight translation because it's the wrong thought world. Um, this is just another way to cross-check that. And I, I just did the calculations and realized, my God, how, how is this done? This is, I, I don't see how it's conceived. Well, guess what, guys? Uh, well, you know, First off, my assessment is in order for whatever reformed Egyptian is, I mean, essentially, it has to be able to record 168 words per square inch. That's my two millimeter calculation. It has to be able to inscribe 268 words per square inch. What human writing system does that? Um, about 262 words at three millimeters, 168 words at two millimeters, 84 words at one millimeter, right? If you have 5.7 characters per square inch, each character must represent 46 words or 29.4 in the thinner plate or 14.8 in the thinnest plate. So each character has to represent numerous words and uh, you know what writing system has one character representing multiple words and of course the answer is there is none yeah there's no writing it's not system. syllabus it's not logo syllabus it's not alphabetic there is no writing system that falls with that dense of character that's correct it, it doesn't exist all right well to me that's extremely damning so after going over as many ancient metal plates with writing on it that I could find, I began looking for how do the apologists deal with this? I mean, I'm, surely I'm not the first person to think of this. This it seems just really obvious. And it actually took me a long time to find actually they have dealt with this. And so I just wanted to bring that up. In 1923, a person named Jan Sodal wrote a paper, The Book of Mormon Plates, where she talks about this. 
And so what she did is she took the larger measurement, the seven by eight inch measurement given by a couple of the scribes. And she had uh, a literate person write on a seven by eight inch piece of parchment, ancient Hebrew, uh, the smallest he could write in pen and ink on parchment. And uh, this is what he produced. He produced seven chapters of the Book of Mormon on one side using uh, a text, using a very fine <laughs> needle pen uh, in order to write this on parchment. And so she said, look, I've got a scribe that can put seven chapters of Nephi on one seven by eight inch piece of parchment using uh, a very fine stylus pen and ink. Uh, therefore, if the plates were half to one millimeter thick, seven by eight inches, uh, no room for the rings, by the way, right? This has filled the entire writing surface. I should be able to be able to do this. Uh, so then four years later, another person named Henry Miller in 1927 wrote a paper, Epigraphic Considerations, where he said, well, the problem with Sodal's approach is she wrote in Hebrew, but this was, um, he used the modern block Hebrew, not the ancient Hebrew. So I'm going to write it in the ancient Hebrew and if the characters are about one millimeter tall, each character, I, I can reproduce this. And then he went out into the world and said, do I find any ancient Hebrew that's one that's written so small uh, that I can confirm that people could write this? And he found seven examples of one to three millimeter uh, characters written on weights and seals, tiny clay seals or tiny weights where, a, you know, a, a small inscription of what the weight was, the you know, what the weight was, how heavy it was, or uh, what the seal was describing. So he said, ha, I found a writing in that size range, one to three millimeters in ancient Hebrew, uh, therefore, if the plates were written in this way, again, if the plates are half to one millimeter thick, um, and the characters are about one millimeter tall, we can do it. All right, so that's their argument. Uh, and, I, and so what's this do? Well, like the Book of Mormon Central uh, argument that we opened up with, all this does is it shows us that if we play with the math, we can make it work. <laughs> it also shows us that the Nephite civilization uh, were a bunch, you know, the Nephites were Lilliputians living on the head of a pin. <laughs> right, right. This and is really the small deep. writing in the insurance policy at the bottom. All the little. That's right. <laughs> little disclaimer down there. But are these the most current? There, no one else has touched this in the apologetic world this is, this is since all these early twentieth century. This is all I. That's, 
absolutely incredible. I, this is this is the entirety of the apologetic argument, and that is if we make the pl- plates big enough, thin enough, and the writing small enough, we can make it work. Well, guess what? That's correct. If you make the plates big enough, thin enough, and the writing small enough, you can make it work. I agree. <laughs> Wow. But but um uh, let's just try imagine writing that with an engraver's stylus on metal plate over, you know, you would need 50 to 80 plates. Uh, so even, you know, if it's thinner than one millimeter, you could do 50 plates with such tiny writing. But you know, let's say you took a bathroom break, right? And you came back. And you sat down and you looked at these little tiny dots and dashes and you say, okay, where was I? (laughs) And, uh, you know, how many errors and duplicates would be inscribed in the plates? Because you, 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 presumably you're copying from another record, right? Remember that picture you showed last time, Rebecca, that, uh, of the huge library, I didn't see a magnifying glass and a little teeny elf doing the engraving. I, they should update that painting. <laughs> but but um, this is so implausible. Uh, but this is their argument. And all, all I can say, sure enough, you make the plates thin enough. Uh, you make the writing small enough. You make the plates big enough. You can make it work. Um you don't attach them. You don't have a D ring. You don't have. Right. 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 Um, so. Here, here's, here's just. That's their argument. Now I'm just going to argue from what we have. Okay. Again, they're, they're arguing from the lack of evidence. We don't have any example of any of this really going on anywhere in the world, but we can do it ourselves and so if we can do it maybe they could do it um the actual ancient textual density is three to six words per square inch again i'm going to strong arm the argument i actually found one example of a uh of an orphic gold tablet this is that ritual tablet used for instructions in the afterlife you don't know if you got the right one because some of the priests were telling you to go left and some were telling you to go right. But um, what's inscribed on them are ritual phrases. Now, so here's another thing. The Book of Mormon is not a series of ritual phrases. If you have a ritual phrase, you can write a noun, a verb, and a direct object, and that'll tell you your entire ritual incantation phrase. You don't have to write the whole thing. Right. Uh, you, you can your, your text can be denser because if you're, uh, for example, um, writing the sacrament prayer. It's been a long time since I've been <laughs> sacrament. Anyone recall the sacrament prayer? Uh, oh, 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 God, oh God, the eternal God. father, we ask thee in the name of Christ uh, to sanctify this water to the souls of all those who bless it. OK, well, if I that's yes. it. That's a ritual statement that's repeated weekly to write that down. I don't have to write every word down. I can write a a word for God, eternal father, bless water. 
I can write that entire phrase in four or five words because it's a ritual phrase and I can recall it with uh, without writing the entire thing down. So in ritual text, you can actually get higher textual densities, right? And uh, the, the, the highest textual density of an Orphic gold tablet I found was about 20 words per square inch, but that wasn't actually 20 ancient words being written down in, in square inch. That's a, that's a condensed text. However, you know, so there's 20 words per square inch. That meets our uh, 14, 15 words per square inch, uh, one millimeter, uh, you know, so... So you can make it work. I'm just saying if, 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 you, if you look at any context at any time and, and fudge the process until it works, sure enough, you can make it work. Besides that, all the other examples are three to six words per square inch. They're all used in ritual contexts except the copper scroll. Uh, and so um, in, in, if your writing is three to six words per square inch, you need over a thousand plates to obtain the text. Um, at three words per square inch, you need about 1500 plates to obtain the text. At, at six words, you need 750, 800 plates to obtain the text. I got this picture here. Your listeners aren't going to be able to see it, but here's Angel Moroni delivering the gold plates to Joseph Smith saying, here are the gold plates. Oh no, Joseph Smith, look behind you. <laughs> here. Here, here are all the places that you have to translate uh, because that would be realistically what the ancient world were produced if they were producing a text like the Book of Mormon on metal plates. Um, of course, we run into, you know, another huge problem. I'm not going to get into it, but, I, you know, I've gone through all this only to realize that the gold plates aren't even necessary as joseph smith rarely have ever used them <laughs> we just we need love it when john laughed that's all we needed <laughs> however they were necessary when we were growing up we we absolutely knew that he sat there yeah. with the plates. so it's only become recently that we're aware that they were not necessary at all so and amazingly, the rock and the hat didn't have to be restored. He already had those in his possession. Exactly. He could have done the whole book without any plates. Yeah. No yeah. otherworldly objects needed. Those were all from the world as we know it. Which is exactly probably what happened. <laughs> this, is, this, is really, this is really damning. In, in essence, the plates aren't necessary. And, so, and, and very often, Joseph Smith would translate or transcribe with them not even being in the room or transcribed with them being covered. He wasn't even looking at them. And so, um, you know, I've gone through all this analysis only to read that he didn't even need them, but I think the analysis is necessary. I think we have to put this in an ancient context. I, I, I think the apologetic argument is uh, both on the medium of the gold is wrong because there's no writing on gold that isn't ritual context and on how they try to reproduce it by producing extremely small print using ink and paper. Uh, this doesn't help their argument. Um, so anyway, yes, I've got a hat on Angel Moroni. I put in a little fiery salamander on the, on Joseph Smith there. Um, 
So what does that leave the medium of the plates? There are no parallels in history of a history written on metal. There are no parallels in history of a textual density required written on metal. And there's no parallels of any sort in the Americas. Um, so it's just another way to cross check what I already um, calculated, what I already figured out is a total anachronism in the text itself. However, there's one more cross-checking. To me, this is damning. And that is by reading the Book of Mormon itself in the Book of Ether. The Book of Ether, I, it's actually pretty uh, a pretty sophisticated narrative technique that Joseph Smith uses. The Book of Ether is a proto-civilization to the Nephites. Uh, so the Nephites were the Lilliputians and the Jaredites were the Oompa Loompas because they were writing really small. <laughs> um, but the Book of Ether is set up as a proto-civilization that creates a proto-text, the gold plates that Nephi's creating. Uh, and so the brother Jared makes plates ether combines them at the end and we have a set of golden plates that records the jaredite civilization so again we have textual frames we have the brass plates that come from the jews we have the gold plates that come from the jaredites and then we have the gold plates presumably that nephi and the nephites create from the prototypes that they have which are the Gold plates of the Jaredites, the brass plates of the Jews. Okay. Well, we don't, again, get a description of the size or thickness of the plates, but we do get a plate count. Textual density, ether, one, chapter one, verses two through five. Landon, would you read those for me? Sure. And I take mine account from the 20 and four plates, which were found by the people of Limhi, which is called the Book of Ether. And as I suppose that the first part of this record, which speaks concerning the creation of the world and also of Adam, and an account from that time, even to the great tower and whatsoever things transpired among the children of men until that time is had among the Jews. Therefore, I do not write those things which transpired from the days of Adam until that time, but they are had upon the plates and whoso findeth them the same will have power that he may get the full account but behold i give not the full account but a part of the account i give from the tower down until they were destroyed all right so sure enough we don't need to know the thickness of these plates because we don't care about the dimensions of the stack of plates the size of the plates would be helpful but i'm guessing that if the Book of Mormon Nephites are using the brass plates in the Jaredite plates as a prototype to create their plates, then their plates are going to be roughly the same size as the prototypes they're using. They've got a standard letter size. This is the standard plate size that you get at the local Lilliputian Walmart uh, <laughs> when you're, you're buying your plates to write your thousands of records. So uh, it doesn't matter. I have a plate count, and that's what's important for me. 24 plates record, and I also have a description of the content that is recorded on the 24 plates. So we know that it, it from these verses, it contains an account of the creation of the world, 
of the days of Adam, all uh, the days of the patriarchs, all the way down until the time of the Tower of Babel. And of course, Joseph Smith is assuming that the account in Genesis is completely historical anachronistic, right? We, we already went over that. Uh, Tower of Babel, you know, you know, in that thought world is somewhere around 22, 2300 BCE. If you go by the standard, you know, date lines of how the Protestants try to figure that out. <laughs> Excuse me, I have to chuckle a little bit. Um, we love your laughing, John. <laughs> um, so so uh, from the creation of the world down to the Tower of Babel, we get a full history. That's on there. But then we get the Book of Ether. And that is the account from the Tower of Babel, Brother Jared, all the, there's 30 Jaredite kings, uh, all the, the wars. We get a description of how they made it from the old world to the new world. It's summarized, right? So we're not getting quotes from the 24 gold plates. We're just getting a summary, which means our textual density is going to be lighter in what we're getting than what's on the original plates. But, oh, wait, there's more. Ether, chapter 3, verses 25 through 27. Landon, would you read those? And when the Lord had said these words, he showed unto the brother of Jared all the inhabitants of the earth, which had been, and also that would be. And he withheld them not from his sight, even unto the ends of the earth. For he had said unto him in times before that if he would believe in him, that he could show unto him all things. It should be shown unto him. Therefore, the Lord could not withhold anything from him, for he knew that the Lord could show him all things. And the Lord said unto him, Write these things and seal them up, and I will show them in mine own due time unto the children of men. All right. And uh, while we're here, let's just read Ether chapter 4, verses 1 and 5. Will you finish that, Landon? And the Lord commanded the brother of Jared to go down out of the mount from the presence of the Lord and write the things which he had seen. And they were forbidden to come unto the children of men until after that he should be lifted up upon the cross. And for this cause did King Messiah keep them, that they should not come unto the world until after Christ should show himself unto his people. Wherefore the Lord hath commanded me to write them, and I have written them. And he commanded me that I should seal them up, and he also hath commanded that I should seal up the interpretation thereof. Wherefore I have sealed up the interpreters according to the commandment of the Lord. All right. This is where we get the interpreters, apparently. They're sealed with the plates that Joseph Smith doesn't use to translate them. Um and we get a full description of what's written on the 24 gold plates of the Jaredites. It's an account of the creation, the patriarchs, Adam, Tower of Babel, brother of Jared, the entire history of the Jaredites in the new world, and all the generations of men, including an account of Jesus, his resurrection, crucifixion, his life, uh, down all the gen uh, prophecies to the end of the world. The brother of Jared on 24 gold plates gives us a history of the world from the first generation to the last. Okay. Now in ether chapter 15, 33 Moroni. So he's putting this at the end of Mormon at the end of the plates. And he makes a comment where he says, I cannot write even 100 of the things contained 
on the plates of the Jared on of the plates of ether in my account. Okay. Well, that just gives me a simple calculation. There's about 17,000 words in the book of ether. And if Moroni can't write one hundredth of the what's recorded on those 24 gold plates, that means that there's at least 1.7 million words on those 24 gold plates. And that gives me a textual density that blows everything else out of the water. <laughs> that blows everything else I, out I, of I the never, water. I've never, wow, this, this calculation and this using the text uh, against itself you're you're literally reading the text and using what it's saying to do the calculations you're taking the text as it states that's correct that's correct to me this is a death blow now you know that's not to say there there can't be arguments because you know the apologists can make arguments they can make arguments until it works but that they had a chip fab and they're able to put it on a, a computer chip and that's how they fit this much on. i tell you what Teeny, what tiny. this tells me is that the golden plates joseph smith had were less than 24 because he in his mind he's thinking that 24 plates can contain the entire history of the world in an ancient writing system in his mind well you know let's go over joseph smith's assumptions revealed in the text of the book of mormon First off, Joseph Smith assumes history is literate. All peoples read and write. We get that from the very beginning. God reads and writes with the heavenly book. The brother of Jared reads and writes. He sees all the prophecies from the first generation to the last generation. He's commanded to write it down. So he writes it down in a book, right? 22, 2300 BCE. Uh, 2 Nephi 28, 29. God reveals his word to all peoples of the world, all the islands of the sea, and he commands people to write his words down uh, and people will be judged out of the books. Joseph Smith's assumption is that all history is literate. This is profoundly wrong. Almost all history is, is not literate, is pre-literate. Assumption number two Joseph Smith has. These assumptions are embedded in the narrative and text of the Book of Mormon, religion is literate. The Lord commands his people to write his revelations. I just went over that with 2 Nephi 29, but we just see it again in the Book of Ether. Ether sees all the revelations of the Lord. He records them in 24 gold plates, uh, and, and they are preserved. Mosiah reads them, but he doesn't tell the people, right? Mosiah already knows, according to the Book of Ether, that Jesus will be born and will be crucified and will be resurrected, but he withheld the information from the people uh, until after it had happened. Okay? So all religion is literate. Look at all the gold, uh, gold plates we just went over that the apologists are using to uh, um, defend the Book of Mormon. All those gold plates are orthopraxic, the ritual. Right? It's, it's, it's a different kind of thinking it's it's not this historical literate thinking joseph smith thinks that religion is um is like the bible that everyone's writing a history of the bible right you know interestingly enough um 
It's uh, Clement of Alexandria. It is Clement of Alexandria who writes that the most safe, this is the early uh, first, second century CE. I'm trying to remember when Clement lives, but this is very early Christianity. And he writes that the most sacred things of deity are not to be put in writing. Um, I'm trying to remember where I uh, get that reference. I actually, I think it's out of uh, From Ritual to Romance, which is a, a book discussing the, the um, Arthurian literature out of the Middle Ages written by a Jesse Weston. And she goes over the Arthurian literature and shows that the motifs embedded in the Arthurian literature are ritual motifs. And then she cites uh, Clement by saying that, you know, in you know, early Christianity, the most sacred things of deity are not for writing. We don't have that paradigm in our heads. Uh, what that tells us is that the most essential things of, of the biblical cultures were never written down. We assume they are written down. Everything's recorded in writing. Um, but the most, you know, for Mormons, this would make sense. Do you write down the temple rituals? I mean, you can find them written down, but you don't, right? And that's at the core of the belief system. The things that you actually do. Well, Joseph Smith assumes that that religion is literacy and that religiosity uh, is literacy and that all the revelations, he calls the brother of Jared. He, no one other wrote as great as the brother of Jared. That's in the book of Ether. He's the greatest writer to have ever lived because he writes all the revelations of the Lord in his 24 gold plates. Um. So here we have two assumptions. History is literate. Religion is literate. Uh, Joseph Smith also assumes that biblical history is literal. That what you're reading is a literal historical blow-by-blow account. Right? I mean, Abraham, for example, he lives traditionally 1800 to 2000 BCE. Uh, you read the story of Abraham, it's a couple chapters in Genesis, and he has all these dialogues. He's talking with angels, he's talking with Lot, he's, uh, you know, he, he has all these dialogues. Where are those dialogues coming from? You know, at 2000 BCE, who's following Abraham around and writing down, like a journalist, everything he's saying to the angel, who's also speaking, from a book? <laughs> Another thing we never thought about. Oh, your our minds are too full, John. We've never thought that direction. This isn't happening. The, the dialogues are created very late by the people compiling the Torah as a way to flush out the tradition that, that they're flushing out. So the dialogues are, you know, 15, 1800 years after the fact. <laughs> and they're fabricated. And that's not... Um, you know, to say that the Bible is a lie, that they are taking a tradition and they're trying to flush it out. And so they add dialogue to it uh, as, as a way to flush out their tradition. Well, Joseph Smith believes that he's reading a historical account. Clearly, he thinks the Tower of Babel is an actual tower and this is an actual historical event. He has no idea that in this time frame, 
truth is not historical fact truth is cosmic fact and th they're not recording anything close to what the bible is saying uh in and in, in a completely different epistemological framework so joseph smith also assumes writings writing histories are commonplace we went over this in the first they're not they're not till very late i mean you know by the time we get tacitus and livy we we you know the first century ce we're starting to get real histories before that you know herodotus is walking around collecting what people are saying oral traditions uh and we get the torah which is a, a composition of different genres of text from both oral and and written accounts so every one of these assumptions he has embedded into the book of mormon narrative and text is profoundly errant and um, and the Book of Mormon narrative are based on them. Uh, this is going to be a real problem when we get to point number five. Um, he also assumes that monotheism dates to the beginning of time. And we went over this. Uh, oral peoples are polytheistic or henotheistic. You don't get monotheism for, you know, uh, 98, 99% of human history. And, uh, and then he has this really interesting assumption. We're going to talk about this in our next next session, but clearly, based off the twenty-four plates of ether, which has to has to have at least one point seven million words, <laughs> so three hundred thirty-five thousand words in uh, the golden plates, you need you know five times that to get one point seven million words. Um, on 24 plates or the plates have to be five times bigger well that's the answer they, right they, there they would have to be more than five times bigger um i i you, you would have to have like you know it's you'd, you'd be carrying these giant yeah these huge like a wall-sized sheetrock right. it'd be a temple around. wall yeah it'd be a temple <laughs> wall. Be a temple there was wall. a temple that had huge writings of really teeny print right we're still dealing with our microprint <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of, of these massive you know murals of, of walls then you know maybe but he he assumes that ancient writing systems can encode vast amounts of information in small amounts of writing we're going to go over this in in the next uh discussion so here are his assumptions embedded into the Book of Mormon text. History is literate, religion is literate, biblical history is literal, writing histories are commonplace, monotheism dates to the very beginning, and I can get vast amounts of information off small amounts of writing. Um, all of these are wrong, and, and that presents ultimately uh, insurmountable problems in my view, for the Book of Mormon. So I'm going to end this by uh, pulling up a Trexmo that, that you made, Rebecca. Again, I <laughs> love your always a Trexmo. <laughs> they, they are awesome. Again, people really need to watch so that they can see the visuals because I, I don't know. Can you read that? Can you Landon, read that? you go ahead and read it. Describe it for the listeners. Yeah, and the then top one is, is Spock, and he's he's looking at a, what looks to be an ancient character, and he says, and apparently he's touching Captain, one. He's touching yeah, he's one touching character one. on a wall. 
And he says, and apparently, Captain, this one single character represents over 2,000 years of their history. <laughs> to which Kirk says. <laughs> to which Kirk responds, are you out of your Vulcan mind, Spock? <laughs> well, uh, sure enough, that's, uh, that's an excellent Trek small because that is describing the assumptions Joseph Smith has as he's creating this narrative. And look, Joseph Smith does need a MacGuffin. He needs an object to base his narrative off. And the object is the gold plates. And, uh, you know, it, it can't be uh, a, a temple with 24 massive golden walls. It has to be something portable that he can use as a MacGuffin to show people, I've got the object, I'm translating the object, here is the text. Uh, so he's 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 got an object i'm not saying that there aren't plates i'm just uh saying that um in order for those plates to work um they have to be well I, they don't work they don't and they don't work in an ancient context sure enough we started with the book of mormon central they still have a problem you you still don't have uh evidence of anything like the Book of Mormon happening. The examples you use argue against your argument, not for your argument. So you still have a problem. Uh, the other apologists in the early 1900s, sure enough, they wrote the text small enough, but they still made the plates, you know, less than a millimeter thick. They're still, you know, they just worked it out until they worked it out. You still have a problem. And then we have the Book of Ether itself. 24 plates, 1.7 million words. That's pretty hard. That's really hard. Um, and so when you combine that with uh, what we already talked about in the first two uh, discussions, uh, there's nothing about this that's holding up. Nothing's holding up. Um, anyway, I'll leave it there. No, don't leave it there. He's not really leaving it there because we are going to do um, episodes about his uh, next couple of points. What do you think, Landon? My uh, mind is reeling. <laughs> uh, again, uh, you know, I'd heard the argument about the density of the writing on the mm -hmm. plates, but to show it with the with the 24 plates of ether and all the text, what it clearly says, taking the text and reading exactly from the text, what the text is telling us, uh, that's that's so improbable uh and it, it it just goes to show we we just keep running into problem after problem after problem after problem and you can do apologetics around it um but when you have to do apologetics for everything and the probability of every one of those apologetics is so remote that when you have a thousand things with a one to million chance of it happening you turn that into a statistical zero uh probability and and that's that's what this is showing that's what i that's how i see it it's a statistical zero um you know what's i tell you what's really hilarious is uh i didn't do this till 2015 what the hell was i doing <laughs> <laughs> it takes time <laughs> you know i didn't even i didn't even think of the questions you know mm -hmm. you, you just mm -hmm. you 
you have the tools that you're given. Of course, I was already well deconstructing the church before that, but I didn't actually sit down and just think this through. And, um, and, and to me, it becomes a statistical zero. And, and I think it's important to say that what we're doing here is not trying to destroy someone's faith or bring them away from a church. We're pointing out that this is the science and the science is consistently supporting that it didn't happen the way that we were told that it happened. And that has to factor in to your faith and how you mm -hmm. interpret what happened. I have zero interest in tearing down a person's faith. All I'm interested in is truth. It's all I'm interested in. And if apologists can come and show me truth that counteracts what I've presented, I'm interested. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to, you know, I make no money doing this. I, there's an apologetic argument, right? They're, they're making money on their, their podcast. Oh God. Nope. I, I have, I, I make no, I, all I am interested in truth. And, um, I, to be honest, I, I would be happy to do a discussion, not on this topic, but on, uh, the epistemology of truth that people apply in Mormonism, the believers, the critics, the ex, how the church does it. And uh, because, look, Mormon church has a lot of goodness in it. And uh, as I see it, 99% of it is given to the church by its members. The members give it their sacrifice, their good intent, their sincerity, their devotion, their piety, their repentance. When you have millions of members doing that, you are going to have some, some good things, great things. Uh, so from the bottom up, Mormonism is full of goodness. From the top down, it's full of rot. And that is a big problem. And I, I will have that argument any day of the week with any apologist or critic. Um, but I have no desire to tear anyone's faith down. I, I'm, I just, here are the facts. How, how, how is the Book of Mormon uh, a product of an ancient civilization in Americas? What's the writing? What's the medium? What's the materials? What's the text? What's the culture? Just, just give me the facts. And um, it's a statistical zero in my view. So what you're saying is the writing is not on the wall. Oh, dear. <laughs> Landon always brings it home. <laughs> writing is not on the wall. Or not on, on the, the wall. <laughs> or on the plates. Well, now we talked about that giant temple wall. You know, the writing could be on there. <laughs> No, I think this brings us to the close of this. And oh my goodness. And I don't think, John, that any of us could have said it any better than what you're saying. That is not the intent at all. The intent is just to present the science, present the facts, invite anyone to delve into the scholarship, to look at peer-reviewed sources, um, to ask questions. That is that is the intent of everything that we're doing. So 
that being said, um, thank you everybody for watching. As we stated before, this is not the last you will see of Dr. John. We have a few more points to go through, so you can look forward to that. But in the meantime, we invite you to, we've had some people um, comment and say, I've watched these episodes three times. I'm taking notes. I feel that you need to, to really understand. I mean, it's just incredible. And, and the deeper you dive, the more you do understand. And it just opens your mind to a new way of thinking and, and all kinds of possibilities. So we invite everybody to watch part one, part two, and this is part three, and then to look forward um, to a few more parts that we'll be doing with Dr. John. Um, we invite you to like and subscribe Mormonish if you'd like to see more of our content. And you can hit that little notification bell if you want to be notified when a new episode comes out. And if you would like to um, support the infrastructure of the channel, you know, the different things that we have to have in place technology-wise to, to get this information out. Um, we have links to how to donate uh, PayPal and Venmo on our show notes. Um, and we just like to thank again, John, it's just incredible to talk to you. It's just, you give us things to think about that, like you said, you you came up with a lot of this in 2015. I mean, none of us have thought anything about this in 2023 and we're just barely starting, just barely scratching the surface. So it's just been a wonderful uh, experience to connect with you and to continue to bring this content to all of our viewers and listeners. So please comment, um, let us know what you're thinking, please do. And thank you again from Mormonish. See you next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.